the reading that we had, and you'll even, if you look over across the page, what we'll get into in the peace offering, uh, is about 17 verses, this one about 16 verses. So it's, it's not very lengthy, these two chapters. That's really the burnt offering was not. Um, so we can extract a lot from the various uh, details that are given in each of these. And when we're talking about a meat offering, and, I, and I've got it noted here on the slide before you, it is uh, properly meal offering, as the definition is, it's fine flour, um, whether it's bacon and all that. So we're, we're actually, um, it's an old English word when we're referring to meat. It really is a meal offering, and that's the uh, context of the word. It means a, a, a gift, actually. This very same word, and even its root, is translated as gift, as we have it in Genesis 32, that... I will bring a present unto my Lord, <clears throat> a gift unto my Lord. So it was an offering of gratitude. It was uh, a little bit different than the burnt offering in that it was a, an offering of appreciation for the things that Yahweh has given us. And in the red quotation on the left column, it states very simple principle that the meal offering was voluntary. But here again, just like the burnt offering, you'll remember God willing last week, is that it had to meet Yahweh's standards. If any will offer, then let him offer it according to this. So it's a positive offering. And uh, just a notation on this, being a voluntary gift or a present just out of the expression of your heart to want to do something in acknowledgement of Yahweh and gratitude and the work of the truth, it's a positive offering. So it's included with the burnt and peace offering on various occasions. And you can track that down on your own. One of the references supplied is uh, Numbers 15, 1 through 6, but not offered with the sin and trespass offering. Because that was a time, as we know, when a man would scrutinize his own life, he'd be very repentant. Sin would come to his knowledge. This is different. This is a gift of gratitude. It's a present. It's giving of Yahweh um, of thanksgiving. So we also notice both, both chronologically, and we'll find this when we go through, because it's Leviticus chapter 2, as Leviticus laid out, it comes after the burnt offering. So it's not to be in lieu of personal sacrifice. And we have a quotation here from the expositor in the little quote box there from Brother H.B. Mansfield that says, In the burnt offering he gave himself, and we saw that, we're going to see a little different focus in this one. Because that was, of course, that the head and the inwards and the legs and the so. All love Yahweh with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. That was the focus of the uh, of the burn offering. When we get into the peace offering, we're going to find some variables of that. So in this meal offering, he gave of his own possessions. It represented something of his own labor. And that's important and signified a gift of homage by which he acknowledged the supremacy of Yahweh. So it does require labor to do this. And we've said this many times before. You, you simply can't be lazy in the truth. It, it, it's fatal. And this mincha, or as we expressed it in the last slide, where that word meat means mincha or meal offering, it's actually used in these two particular references. And it symbolizes a dedication of the person. This is what we read in Malachi 1. From the rising up of the sun... Even to the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and every place incense shall be offered unto my name. And a pure offering, that's that word meal offering, for my name shall be great among the heathen. 
It's a very joyous time, and it's in context of a pure offering when even the Gentiles and the heathen will know of Yahweh's Sabaoth. Malachi 3. He shall sit as a refiner and a purifier. There's a pure offering of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto Yahweh. And here it is again, the minchop, an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto Yahweh as in the days of old as in the former years. So we have a righteous offering, a pleasant offering, a pure offering, one that is purged, purged and purified. So it's not like the burnt offering where you have bloodshed involved, where it's a man took of the meal, he ground it down to fine flour, he baked it in an oven or in a frying pan, and then he offered it unto Yahweh. But that doesn't mean it's lessened in its particular value. It just focuses on a particular different aspect. <clears throat> As Brother Mansfield said, he gave himself in the burnt offering. This one he gives of his resources. So here we have in Numbers 15 that it was offered with the burnt and the peace offering, which are very positive offerings. When you come into the land of your habitations, which I give you, you'll make an offering by fire unto Yahweh, a burnt offering, or a sacrifice in performing a vow, or in a freewill offering, or in your solemn feast, to make a sweet savor unto Yahweh. Of the herd or of the flock, these are animals of the herd and of the flock, and we know this was a bloodless sacrifice, that he that offers offering unto Yahweh will also bring a meal offering. So he's giving of himself and of his resources happily. As we said, it's not offered with the sin or the trespass offering. So it's a positive offering. So when you're making that offering of the burnt and peace offering, you realize it's supposed to be done with joy. It's supposed to be done with happiness, not reluctantly. So to emphasize that it was also offered oftentimes with the burnt and the peace offering so that there was a bloodshedding in those two particular offerings, You'll notice in these cases, it was oftentimes offered with a drink offering. If it didn't necessarily accompany, brothers and sisters, a burnt or a peace offering, look what we have in Leviticus 23. His meal offering, and again, it's grain, thereof shall be of two-tenths deals of fine flour mingled with oil, and the drink offering shall be of wine, fourth part of a hit. Again, in number six, um, and you know really the context of the depth of number six, the Nazarite vow. He will come with a basket of unleavened bread, and the priest shall offer it for his meal offering and his drink offering. And you get that drink offering. You can check your alternate translations for this. The King James doesn't say it. But in 2 Timothy 4, 6 and Philippians 2, uh, where Paul says, I'm now ready to be offered. And again, in Philippians 2, yea, if I be offered upon the sacrifice of your service. That is actually in the Greek. It's the expression of the drink offering. And some margins will have that. Some alternate translations will have that. So drink offering was a representation of pouring out someone's life. So that's the whole purpose of its connection with the meal offering. It wasn't to be done instead of. And we know that because 1 Corinthians 13 states that. Where Paul talks about charity. Can do all these things in labor and in works and not really have the affection for the truth and that is charity though i have all these things and i have not charity that's worthless so the two have to work together it's why the meal offering is joined with the burn and the peace offering and then on those occasions it's also joined with the drink, 
drink offering so that we don't say, well, listen, I just went through the ritual or I used my resources and my time, but there's no personal dedication to the truth. Um, and sometimes that, that's easy to do. I know Brother Gilbert Grocott said uh, once, written in a book, we can spend all day supposedly doing work in the truth and never thinking once about the truth. And he's right. I know I've done that. So this is what we have in the voluntary offering. When any will offer a meal offering unto Yahweh, his offering shall be a fine flour. Now we have the variations of that, but it definitely had to be a fine flour. So it's voluntary here. And in, in we just saw that in, in the previous slide in Leviticus 23, 13, that that meal offering is given dimensions. It's two tenths deals of fine flour, and that's coming in a different context. So when we're reading these things about the meal, the peace, and the burnt offering, even the sin offering in the first five chapters of Leviticus, just know this. We're dealing with the general principles. They'll vary a little bit, and we'll get into this a little bit later with the meal offering showing a variation of this, and as well as with the peace offering. So no amount is specified there. It's just a matter of your conscience. It's a willing offering of a genuine heart. What you can and what you will do for the sake of the truth is done voluntarily. But you'll notice again, we brought this up with the tabernacle and with the burnt offering. Yahweh gave them the spoil of the Egyptians, but there was wood involved, there was gold involved, there was fine twine linen, there were animal skins involved. There were all sorts of things involved there. So the men were to take raw materials and then put their own labor to it. And even the women did. They helped spin some of the goat's hair or the fine linen, so to speak, <clears throat> even given of their own looking glasses for the purpose of the labor. The men were active in their work. Yahweh requires labor to be involved. And we mentioned this at the time. Even though men prayed for victory in the battle, it didn't mean they hadn't, didn't have to go out and fight. So none of the things that we're talking about in the meal offering are to be done in lieu of actually living the truth in your own life. And that's the important element here. The truth absolutely requires effort. We know that from the oil itself, from study of the scriptures. The reason the church world does not study the scriptures is that you have to pound it out. You have to study. You have to hammer out the olive oil beaten very hard. It requires effort. They're very casual, passive readers, if they read at all, of the word of God. And Brother H.P. Mansfield said something I read years ago. God will never reveal his truth to those sorts of people. So it requires effort. Um, and in fact, I was just corresponding with my son-in-law uh, a little earlier today about this very principle. It's true. In today's reading in Isaiah chapter 5, the parable of the vineyard, it's very easy to decipher what that parable means. And some of the parables of Christ, especially when he spoke of the Pharisees and they knew he spoke of him. And we rightly divide the parable because we know what it's saying and the, the, the hints are very strong. And we do that with the simple things of the word. But when the parables get a little bit deeper and more difficult, even the prophetic things like in Isaiah 5, if they get a little bit deeper into the prophecies, we default to just the moral lessons. We don't want to do that. Just keep hammering away, keep pounding out the olive oil, keep working to refine the fine flour through prayer. It'll come to your eyes and they'll be enlightened. 
So again, as we said, it wasn't offered with the sin or the trespass offering. The meal offering represented man's appreciation for what Yahweh did, and therefore it's not something that was done with those in connection of acknowledgement of sin. And that's important because men often mask self-servitude as servitude with God. We know that from the many cases, Old and New Testament, where men were lifted up in pride, although they were handling the word of God at the same time. So the meal offering, not offered with the sin and trespass, offered with the burnt and the peace offering. I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. And that's not talking about spending your time and consuming your time talking about brethren. But there are absolutely times to mark brethren that cause divisions because, as the quote goes on to say, they're not really serving the Lord Jesus Christ. They're serving their own belly. By good words and fair speeches, deceiving the hearts of the simple. We don't want to be simple-minded like the Proverbs, taken in by the strange woman of sin. Philippians 3, many walk of whom I told you many. And now tell you weeping, they're enemies from the cross of Christ. That's crucifixion of the flesh. Their end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame. And brothers and sisters, if you break that down in the Greek, and even alternate translations will do this for you, it means they glory in the things they really should be ashamed of. It's like they brag about the very things that they actually, a Christadelphian should be ashamed of. Second Peter 2, chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness, despising authority, presumptuous self-will, not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Personal, person, personal gratification and the exaltation of one's own self is a foundation for a lot of religion. Our brother said it in his opening prayer. These ideas are alien to the old man of the flesh. They are. Not hard to find, but they're very alien to the old man of the flesh. Because there is a handling of the word of God deceitfully. And there's a rightly dividing the word of truth. And there are many that corrupt the word of God. Paul said he didn't do that. He practiced it honestly. So we have to search our motives. So here's one of the elements involved. So when that fine flour is offered, there's the pouring of oil upon it. So it has to be done of something that has its basis in the word. And go to the lower part of the quote on your screen, brothers and sisters. Brother Maury Stewart lived many years ago, um, prominent in the 1960s in this country, on the West Coast. He had a book on the law of Moses, and he said every portion of the meal offering was to be saturated with oil. So the dedication of our labors and recognition of ownership to all things, they have to have their basis in the word. We can deceive ourselves, brothers and sisters. We can deceive ourselves that it's working the truth and it's not really. It's, again, as our brother said, many ideas of humanism have come into the truth, and it's called work of the truth. There are a lot of things we're doing right now that are copying the church system. The social services, the feeding of the hungry, 
And you know the, the, the place of those in, in the, the right place in the brotherhood. But the emphasis is work there when it's not really saturated in oil. And it's kind of mimicking the so-called works, not based in the word that the churches of the world do. And it's very dangerous. Almost routinely, I get appeals for those sorts of things through my email. So Leviticus 24, this was pure oil, olive beaten for the light to cause the lamps to burn. So we know the purpose of the oil. And of course, the word is a lamp, the commandment is a lamp, so on and so forth. We studied this in the tabernacle. Again, that's why I thought it was best appropriate to study these altar offerings. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, he called unto Moses out of the tabernacle after you've dealt with the tabernacle. So we're studying to show ourselves approved unto God. We have to check ourselves sometimes, brethren, to find out if it's really based in the word or if it's just based to make us feel good about ourselves. And that's a very subtle thing. Again, as our brother said in his opening prayer, it requires scrutiny. And so frankincense was poured on it. Frankincense was one of the elements of the incense in Exodus 30, 34, one of the main ingredients, and it was a positive ingredient. And you can tell that by the context in which it's used in the scripture. So again, this is a positive offering offered with the peace and the meal offering. And sometimes you do. Probably not enough. I know not enough in my own life. You just feel extremely appreciative of the truth. Extremely appreciative. Again, if I can reference our brother's opening prayer, we see the tumult of the nations and the waves rising up. And it's getting more and more intense until the Christ returns. And we know exactly. God has revealed it unto his servants by the prophets. We know exactly what nations to keep an eye on, what we should and should not legitimately have concern over, and what we should not have concern over. We know how to read the heavens, so to speak. This should be appreciation. Let my prayer be set before thee as incense, as the evening sacrifice, and so on and so forth, as we studied in the tabernacle, so that there's oil first, then the frankincense. And that's what Proverbs says. We can't turn away our ear from the hearing of the law and just be given to what we perceive is an easier thing. We'll do some work in the truth and we'll offer prayer while the word goes neglected. Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. Proportionately, there should be way more attention given to study the word than prayer. That's our expression to God in gratitude. There were specific times of day, even under the law, when it was done. So remember that. It's got to have its basis in the word and then prayer that it would be prosperous. And so we read this in verse 2, but he'll bring it to Aaron and his sons, and he'll take thereof a handful of flour and the oil with the frankincense, and he'll burn it as a memorial upon the altar to be an offering made by fire. So the priest is taking the handful of the flour with all the frankincense thereof. Now, we just said that represented prayer. And remember what Brother Robert says in the Law of Moses. I have the quote for you. Every meal offering was brought to the altar by the high priest. Not otherwise could an Israelite be offered an acceptable gift to God. There's no other way to approach God. Man is not fit to approach on his own merit. We are not fit. The priest takes a handful of the fine flour and all the frankincense. He burns on it. Christ controls all prayer. He is the one through whom we pray. 
Our basis in prayer has to go through his name as the mediating priest to all the frankincense. Which, by the way, I thought it was a very good point by Brother Roberts in the Law of Moses. If you just take your, your, your Bible and he goes through it, you can really get a grasp of the Law of Moses and just mark it in your margin, uh, simple comments and go through the law. It's really not difficult to do at all. Um, so the remnant of the meal offering then, and this is important, brothers and sisters, the remnant of the meal offering was to be given to Aaron and his sons. It's a thing most holy in the offerings of Yahweh made by fire. So the mediating priest took part of the process. So here's the whole unity of it, brothers and sisters. When you're dealing with the burnt offering, the meal offering, the peace offering, sin offering, it's deliberately intended, deliberately intended, as is the truth, to draw the offer to God by approach of a mediator. There is a mediating priest involved in this process. It's to bring all parties in reconciliation one with another. The offerer, he does it willingly in this case, obligatory in the sin offering. He brings it to Yahweh to the place that he's appointed upon the altar according to the standards, whether it's a burnt peace meal or sin offering or trespass offering. He's met God's requirements and then he brings it because he cannot directly front with Yahweh. He does it through a mediator. So that's the whole concept of these altar offerings in a very simple principle, but a very doctrinal principle, that there's always this element of a mediating priest. As Brother Robert says, we can't approach God on our own. He's of two pure eyes as to be old sin. So he's one who experienced like labor. He's one who came in our condition. He was a, not a partaker, partaker of the nature of angels. And I think this is significant. It doesn't just say partook of our nature. It says he took on the seed of Abraham. And that's not everybody. Really in the redemptive process, brothers and sisters. That isn't everybody. And we know that. Of course, Galatians 3, 26 through 29 tell us, so is it are baptized, so that he may be a merciful and faithful high priest. He was made a partaker of flesh and blood, so that he's a faithful and merciful high priest. And this, by the way, was eaten in the holy place. And we know what that represents. Now, having gone through the tabernacle, it represents the ecclesia. Table of showbread there. The oil, the lampstand, which is directly called the, the Ecclesia in the Apocalypse, first two chapters. So we know what it represents. And then the altar of incense, the closest into the most holy. Christ, it says, who in the days of his flesh offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. So here's this mediating priest in the same position as ourselves. And he was a son, but he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And being made perfect, and that is in nature, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all that behave, uh, obey him. So now he's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So Aaron and his sons. It's a fellowship of Aaron and his sons, the high priest and his brethren. They remained faithful when their other brethren went astray. Exodus 32 is, again, our brother appropriately, but sadly, included in his opening prayer. We see it coming into the Ecclesia. If we wouldn't have been warned about it many thousand years ago in the word of God, even by the false prophets, it would really shake us. But we know it, brothers and sisters. No period in the time of the Ecclesia 
Old or New Testament was without trouble. We see it, we identify it, we deal with it. They were Yahweh's selected firstborn. They were not numbered among the multitude representing the seed of Abraham. They were not given a temporal inheritance like Abraham, finding no inheritance in it, Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 11. They encamped round about the tabernacle to keep it, to separate the clean from unclean, holy from unholy. They bore up the tabernacle, God manifestation in its movements, and they were qualified teachers in Israel. And here's the exhortation, brothers and sisters, because we noted that some of this was given as the other altar offerings to Aaron and his sons to live off of. And here's the exhortation. The priest that labored on Yahweh's behalf, and Paul brings us out regarding the apostles, they were sustained by the very offerings. Those who labor in the truth, they do benefit personally. If I've heard it once, I've heard it accurately a hundred times. Brethren say, oh, the brother who's putting the class together or exhorting always gets more out of it. Of course. All he can do is express in words to the best of his ability what's combusting in the mind. There is personal benefit from all of the activity and the labor and the truth. Pouring the oil and the frankincense on it. And if thou bring an obla uh, oblation, an offering, uh, Corbin, I believe the word is there, of the meal offering, it will be bacon in the oven, unleavened cakes. We know what that means, a fine flour mingled with oil. And by the way, this whole bacon in the oven, this is interesting because it was something that was prepared in your house. And that's really the essence to the truth, brothers and sisters. In this free will offering of a present and a gift to Yahweh, what happens in your house is what you are as a Christadelphia. It's not just when we come together collectively. That's what you are. Verse 11 is in fact, it says, no meal offering which you shall offer shall be made with leaven. We know because it's a corrupting influence. We've gone through this before with the first fruits and in other elements that it represents leaven that can leaven the whole lump of the ecclesia. It's the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth that Yahweh wants. He wants sincerity and truth so that we're not supposed to glory in our own glory. And that's why he says your glorying is not good. You've got leaven in you. The principle of unleaven was established in Exodus, of course, chapter 12, upon their departure from Egypt. So the world and the truth can absolutely not mingle, brothers and sisters. And then we're told this also, this added principle, this added value of it in verse 11, not only was no leaven to be upon it, but no honey. Now, you know this yourself, and you can pour honey on bread. Just try this as an ex exercise. It immediately gets hardened and it gets stiff. Immediately. Well, there's no question that honey represents, thy word is honey to my mouth. It's sweeter than honey to my lips. Notice the second application of it, as it appears, though, also in Proverbs 25. It's not good to eat much honey for men to search their own glory is not glory. So if we're careful in rightly dividing the word of truth, it is to be sweet unto our taste, brothers and sisters. But we cannot let it turn to our own glory. It is a constant warning in Scripture for men not to use the word as a means for personal glory. 
Not at all. The word has been misused all throughout scripture. This is not anything I'm inventing or pushing to the forefront. You know the dozens and scores of references that talk about how the Bible has been used as a vehicle for men to exalt themselves for personal gain, to draw away others, so that their status is higher. Paul said such men are really pleasing men and not God. Christ and the, you know, the apostles and the prophets, not only did they abase themselves, they were abased by circumstances. They never let the word become a glory in their own standing in life. Totally foreign to the churches. If thou bring an oblation of the meal offering, it could be bacon in the oven, it could be bacon in a pan, it could be bacon in a frying pan. So its contents are the same, brothers and sisters. And here's where it is a matter of conscience. And I think this is one of the wrestling principles with the truth. Because sometimes we do this when someone wants to use something they have of their own resources and their own ability to the work of the truth. And I know I've wrestled with this plenty and no other brethren do. Do you use it for the work of the truth or don't you? I don't know. Is my motive pure? Is it a liberty? By using a liberty and calling it a gift, is it a, well, is the fine flour involved? Did it involve heavy work in the truth? Is there oil upon it? Is it pounded out? Is it to bolster and to boost the word? And is there frankincense thereon? So there are many forms of voluntary work in the truth. They've got to meet specifics in those various forms, as we know, are expressed in 1 Corinthians 12. Some people are great at tongues, preaching the truth. Some are very good at visiting the sick. Some are very, very good in the element of wisdom. They may not say a whole lot, but when difficulty comes and you speak to them, they're great in the element of wisdom. They will guide you regardless of what Bible knowledge you think you have. Faith, conviction, faith is something else. I know brethren that I know here in Texas, known for many, many years, have endured an incredible difficulty in their life. Way more than I have. What an exhortation to faith they are, and you'd never know it. Every oblation of the meal offering shall be seasoned with salt. Why? Neither shalt thou suffer or lack the salt of the covenant to be lacking from the meal offering. With all the offerings, you shall be offered with salt. And that meant all of them, brothers and sisters, because it represents the salt of the covenant. It's very simple. You get that in direct connection to the word, where it is the preserving salt of the covenant. And that's one of the opening parables of Christ. In Matthew 5, he says to the Jews, you are the salt of the earth. But you've lost your zest. So it will be AD 70. AD 70 language. And the daily sacrifice is taken away. But the salt has lost its savor. It will be cast out, trodden underfoot of men. Not good for the dunghill, the Gentiles. That was outside the camp, brothers and sisters. That's how he opens his parables, condemning them. They didn't really comprehend or embrace the Abrahamic and Davidic covenant, and they didn't know it. So it was cast out, trodden underfoot in eighty seventy, and then the next sake, of course, is that the light stand upon a hill that all that entered into the house moves to the ecclesia. 
let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer every man. And that's answer a man according to the truth. So those are the basic structure. That is the basic structure of the meal offering, brothers and sisters, with some variation to it. Same thing when we get into the peace offering. You'll find the focus of the burnt offering was very, very simple when we looked at it. When you have the head and the leg and the inwards, and the, we had those pieces of it, the skin to be what was to be done with it. We have all the elements there. Here in the peace offering, it is very much like the burnt offering. It's not meal. It is the flesh of the animal, animal after the same standard as the burnt offering, but there are some variations of it. So having looked at the burnt offering, this peace offering will not be difficult to understand. Now, I say that only in an academic sense. To live it, well, that's a different story altogether, isn't it, brothers and sisters? So if this oblation be a sacrifice of peace offering, that word sacrifice, by the way, means to slaughter. It's zebek, I believe, in the Hebrew. You look it up directly in Strong's, it's quite emphatic. It means to slaughter. This is a peace offering, and it means to slaughter. It's more intense than even the phraseology of the burnt offering. Again, it's going to be of the herd, but in this case, it could be a male or female without blemish before Yahweh. And just like the burnt offering was to lay his head upon him. So here's where the two are often offered together. That is the burnt and the peace offering. But in the burnt offering, there's a difference. As Isaac, Genesis 22, was offered as a burnt offering, typical of Christ, it was only a male. It was only a male. Here it's a male or female. And, of course, the apostles bring that out. Those baptized into Christ, whether male or female. Philip went about preaching the gospel, and they were baptized men and women. It's a male and female thing. So it's like the burnt offering, really, chronologically, in Leviticus, it was the first one. The meal or the peace offering is listed later here in the Levitical order because Christ first is the male without blemish is offered. It's an important, very doctrine, a very important doctrine established in this, uh, in this context, brothers and sisters, in this chapter. Because it says in verse 5, and your alternate translations may have this, you that maybe have the RSV, RV, NIV, or, or some of the Young's literal, I don't know. But I know this, that the NIV has this. In this chapter, in verse 5, it says, When he took the peace offering, that Aaron's sons, again, the mediating priest, were to burn it on the altar upon the burnt sacrifice, which is on the wood that is on the fire, as an offering made by a fire, a sweet savor, unto Yahweh. And alternate translations have on top of the burnt offering. And I think Brother Mansfield points this out in the expositor. So it's emphasizing that a peace offering has its basis or its foundation on the burnt offering. Remember, it's called the altar of burnt offering in the law of Moses. That's literally the name that's given to it, like the altar of incense or the golden altar or the brazen altar on the altar. It's not called the altar of peace offering or the altar of sin offering, the altar of meal offering. It's called the altar of burnt offering. So the burnt offering was the standard. So in this case, the foundation is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we read this all throughout the New Testament. When you were without Christ, the burnt offering, you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, 
strangers from the covenants of promise, the salt, having no hope without God, that I believe is the word atheist, atheos, in the world, and now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes far off Gentiles, have been made nigh Jewish by the blood of Christ. He is our peace. He's made both one. In this peace offering, male and female can be offered, Jew and Gentile. Romans 5, being justified by faith, we have paid peace with God through our burnt offering, the Lord Jesus Christ, and have access to the Father. It's again in Colossians 1. Having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, I say, whether they be in earth or in heaven, ye who were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, been reconciled. So here again is that word reconciled, tied up with peace, based upon Christ, the burnt offering. So accordingly, in the New Testament, the preaching of grace in Christ, the burnt offering, the preaching of truth is called the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. And it means unity. Literally here in the Old Testament, it's related to that word shalom. means to unify. And again, you're unifying the offer with the priest and Yahweh himself. Same principle picked up in the New Testament. The sacrifice, the slaughter of flesh, is the basis of peace and unity with Yahweh. Brother Roberts, Law of Moses. It's in the red lettering, sorry, at the bottom of your screen. Peace offering, by its very name, imported the idea of making peace and therefore removing the cause of dispeace. That cause would be on the offerer's side, holy. Isn't that interesting? Great quote. Here's the expositor. Here's what Brother Mansfield says. In actual practice, when you have the four of them brought together, the peace offering, and we'll quote Leviticus 9 in a moment, was the last to be offered. First was the sin offering. By one man, sin came into the world. The pro providing a means of atonement, then the burnt offering, representing complete self-surrender, giving yourself wholly unto Yahweh, followed by the meal offering, the expresses of loyal submission and the offering of a gift. Then finally, the peace offering, with its meal, expressed the joy of fellowship with God. And here's where you have it in Leviticus 9. The people bring their offerings, the sin offering of the people, then the burnt offering, he offered according to the manner, then he brought the meal offering, took the handful. Then he slew the bullock of the ram for the sacrifice of peace offerings, which was for the people. Why was the peace offering last? Well, you find that in the scriptures. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. Easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits. It's first pure, then peaceable. And when you talk about, even in the ecclesial realm, when you're talking about the element of fellowship, it's too often, at least to me, brought into a personal realm. Well, you think that this fellowship, or they, they don't even know God, and they won't be in the kingdom and all. 
That's not honest. That's not an honorable accusation, brothers and sisters. It's a concern about first being pure. Here again, chronology is important. We've noted this several times. Adam was first formed, then Eve. Melchizedek, by interpretation, the scriptures by inspiration says, first, the king of righteousness, and, and I'm quoting Hebrews 7, after that, the king of Salem or king of peace. Got to be righteousness first. When Jehu comes in, and he, of course he's seeking to pursue Jezebel, slaughter her and all those she's influenced and sons, Joram says, is it peace? And he said, what peace? As long as the whoredoms of thy mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many. We say that to the world without, don't we? When we're talking the truth to them. Someone says, oh, well, I'm Baptist or I'm Catholic or I'm Methodist. And you start talking doctrine. You say, first of all, this isn't personal. This is not personal me against you. I'm only talking about scripturally. The actual teaching of the Bible. That's where I, I differ from you greatly. I believe the Bible teaches this and that. So we read this in Leviticus 22. And this is interesting. Unlike the burnt offering, certain elements were relaxed in the peace offering. And look at the red quote in the bottom, Brother Barling Law and Grace first. Then we'll quote this. The sacrificial law bid that none would withhold this service through the consciousness of personal inadequacy to render it. Now, how often do we read that? How often? So Leviticus 22 says, you always feel inadequate. Offer the sacrifice of the peace offering to accomplish a vow or a free will offering. We're going to notice the vow and the free will offering vary. It shall be perfect to be accepted, no blemish in it. We talked about this before. The spiritual, the metaphors here, blind, broken, maimed, having weaned, scurvy, scabbed, he will not offer it unto Yahweh. A bullock or a lamb that has anything superfluous, longer, or lacking in its parts. One ear that's long, a tail that's long, a leg that's long, one that's short. Thou mayest offer it for a freewill offering, but for a vow, it will not be accepted. We know our walk is not even. We know it's not, brothers and sisters. And that's what it means like a maimed, a superfluous, or lacking in its parts. We've seen men like this, humans, where one leg is shorter than the other. They have to have a block, block shoe, and they walk with a certain gait. We know our walk is off. We're not going to vow to Yahweh that he just needs to accept us. We're trying to get better. But for a free will offering and something we want to make an offering to Yahweh and acknowledge the principle of peace based upon the burnt offering, as Brother Barling says, Yahweh would not have us withhold that sacrifice, even though we're conscious of our own inadequacy. <clears throat> so it was laid upon the male burnt offering without blemish. And how often are we, brothers and sisters, completely conscious of our own shortcomings and just deliberate sin when we're placed upon Christ? That's when we look the worst. He's the example. If this mind being Christ, it was also in you. Yeah, in two hours from now, we won't even be thinking about the truth. So it's acknowledging the sinlessness 
of Christ, it's not bringing him down, but it's putting a male or a female peace offering on top of him as a free will offering and knowledge inadequacies. So we know this. Here again is the offering of the unleavened cakes to accompany the sacrifice of the peace offering. So we know what unleavened represents, brothers and sisters. Here's where the focus is. <clears throat> Excuse me. On the peace offering. It was different than the burnt offering. The focus is the fat in the inward parts. And that word fat is constantly translated the best, the finest, the richest. Strong says it means the richest, the choicest, the absolute best that covers the inwards, all the fat that is upon the inwards, the two kidneys, the fat that is upon those, and that which is by the flanks, also the call that is above the liver, and the kidneys shall it take away. So the big focus here on the peace offering is the inwards, the kidneys, the flanks, the call, the liver. It's the fat that comes off the inward parts. That's the focus of the peace offering. So the law of Moses, Brother Robert says, the man giving his time, his love, his service, his substance, gives the fat of his life. It's the food of the peace offering. By the way, later in this chapter, which I know we didn't have read, in two verses, verses 11 and 16, it says it's the food of the peace offering offered upon the altar. And it states fat emphatically, all the fat is Yahweh. In this chapter, all the fat is Yahweh's. It's called in Amos, the peace offerings of your fat beasts. So that is clearly, I know I'm being redundant now, it's clearly the focus of the peace offering, the inwards and the best part that comes from the inwards. And that, brothers and sisters, has to do with the motive. And here's where the exact word is represented. All the best of the oil, the best of the wine, the best of the wheat, the best of the first fruits, all the best of the gifts shall be given unto Yahweh. It's the same thing in Psalm 81. He that had fed them also with the finest of the wheat, pouring honey out of the rocks. Psalm 147. He will make peace in thy borders and filleth thee with the finest of all the wheat. So that's a requirement of the fat, the finest, the best part, brothers and sisters. The best of our time. The best of our resources the best of our energy, the best of our affection. It is going to be diced up in many things, especially in this mortal life. He wants the best of it. The best of those things that we have, it doesn't make any difference what portion of the inwards it takes on. The best of it belongs on Yahweh. Whosoever eateth the fat of the beast, which is man, shall be offered on fire, made by fire unto Yahweh. That soul that eateth shall be cut off from the people. It's an expression of the fat of the mighty in 2 Samuel 1, verse 22, representing the energy and the vigor. In the contrast of self-serving, the proud are referred to in Psalm 17 as enclosed in their own fat. In Psalm 199, the heart as fat as grease more than what the heart could wish for. Their eyes stand out with fatness, it says in Psalm 73. All of their emotion, 
all of their inward parts that came from those various inward pieces. It was all about them. Their key focus was making sure they had the best. They had the truth, get some portion, but they have the best. That's self-servitude, brothers and sisters. And this word, the fat that covered the inwards, well, here's where it's literally translated. In Psalm 51, renew a right spirit within me. Bless their mouth, they curse inwardly. And the multitude of my thoughts within me. Sarah laughed within herself. The children struggled within her. Of course, it's the bringing forth of Esau uh, and Jacob. And with my spirit within me, will I seek him early. So it's within you. It's your affection. It's what you really think and what your real desire is. Remember before we were saying, it's got to have its basis in the oil of the word. Because a lot of people can guise servitude with or for the truth when it's really self-servitude. So the two kidneys and the two and the fat that is upon them and the flanks and the call that is above the liver and the kidneys with them. This word kidneys is almost always translated reins, and it represents the heart and emotion. Try my reins in my heart. It's the same word kidneys. He trieth the hearts and the reins. I was pricked in my reins. O Yahweh of hosts that trieth the righteous and seeth the reins in the heart. It's what our real emotions are. And the word flanks means hope. It is actually translated confidence. That's a little quote box to the left. Strong sense, it deliberately implies trust. So this is the location where the fat is taken. Where's our trust? Where are our reins in our hearts? By this requirement, Brother Percy Mansfield and the Expositor, Israelites were taught to allow Yahweh to govern their feelings by placing their confidence and trust in him. And that is harder and harder in this age in which we live. We have everything, brothers and sisters. I do. I have everything, really. I can, anything I need, any necessity, and well beyond that. So the two kidneys and the call above the liver. That word call means redundant, out or overhanging part. It is translated, remain, rest, and leftover. That's important. Remember, the fat represents the choices and the best part given unto Yahweh all the way to the call that is above the liver. Now, here's where that is translated, brothers and sisters. Exodus 12, let nothing of it remain. 36, all the work to make it and too much. Leviticus 6, the remainder thereof, Aaron and his sons. The remnant of oil, there was not left a man of them. Yahweh make thee plenteous. He gave to her that she reserved. So Yahweh wants the best all the way to the things that remain that are unused by us. Think of a way you can use it, the truth. What can we use from the best of what we got to the other things that we have that are being unused? The redundant, the excess, that which remains. Think about what can be done. And the liver represents deep emotion. <clears throat> and again, of course, brothers and sisters, it is an offering made by fire unto Yahweh. We talked about this in the burnt offering. I will make my words in thy mouth as fire. It is not my word like a fire. It's the inspecting piece, an element of the truth that runs through to inspect man. 
because a man's goings are before Yahweh. He cannot know them. He needs the perfect law of liberty, that mirror that James talks about, to behold himself in the water of the word to see what manner of man he is. It's got to be inspection by the word because sometimes, well, at least for me, many times, I have to check my motivation and what it's for. It shall be a perpetual statute all generations throughout all your dwellings. doesn't matter where you live, what generation you're in, no blood, no fat shall be because it represents the life. We talked about this before in the last class, and it represents the best. Our life and the best does not belong to us, brothers and sisters. person that does that, he will be cut off from the camp of Israel. So Moses, Moses wrote all these words of Yahweh. Here's Exodus 24. Rose up in the morning, built an altar upon a hill, or under a hill. Twelve pillars, it's connected with Israel. He sent young men of the children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings, and sacrificed peace offerings. Here again, they're drawn together. Here's the importance of the basis in the word. And Moses takes half the blood of that. He puts it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he takes the book of the covenant and he reads it in the audience of the people. And they said, all that Yahweh has said, we will do and be obedient. So Moses takes the blood. And by the way, I've got in blue there. This is quoted in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 18 through 19, comparing the old covenant with the new covenant, where Hebrews 9 says, he took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people and on the book. He said, behold, the blood of the covenant which Yahweh hath made with you concerning all these words. We're not academic Christadelphians. We're not an academic people. Only. We know that understanding this is vital. When they understood these things, they were baptized. We know that doctrine is essential. It's emphasized in every class that we've had so far, brothers and sisters, in all the various metaphors in which its examination is presented, whether it's fire, the oil pounded out, speaking to Yahweh from the tabernacle. The word is absolutely critical. It is indispensable. But he sprinkles the blood upon the book and upon the people. It's connecting us with the book, brothers and sisters. We are, as it has been said, people of the book. Those are the terms of the covenant. And to seal that, he's using the blood of Christ, the burnt offering, and the blood of the peace offering. The male and female, sometimes a free will offering, it did have a bit of blemish in it, based upon him. We know that we are committed in covenant to the word and to conduct it ourselves based on the words of the covenant and the reading of this book, based on the element of the burnt and the peace offering. And brothers and sisters, I wanted to conclude with this, and I, my apologies, I think we're, we may have gotten started a little late, so running just a couple of minutes over. Um, I forwarded this to Brother Pete to send on to the rest of you. Um, this is something I've been working on embarrassingly for about 10 years. 
start working on this one. My uh, oldest daughter was married 10 years through five volumes of Eureka. That's embarrassing. Um, nonetheless, I read this in the Logos by H.P. Mansfield. And so I decided that um, I was going to take up a reading of Logos. This is what he says. I've referenced it hodgepodge here and there, Eureka, in many different instances. If you go to the back of volume five, you'll find the back of volume five of Eureka, the one published by Logos, you'll find every single quote in scriptures and then the volume and the page number where it corresponds. So if you ever have a question in your studies, just go to volume five. Now I found myself doing that multiples of times, but I read this in the Logos. It was printed. It said the value of Eureka lies not merely in what has been expounded at length therein, but also in the hints and ideas that are profusely scattered throughout its pages and which the student can extend and develop from his own independent study of the word. Take them up. Take those hints. The searching out of these secret things of the deity has all the thrill and pleasure that comes from unraveling any mystery. I'll tell you, brothers, nothing will set you on fire, like unraveling these types of parables. All the pioneer brethren said it, here again, HP refers to it. And that's what Brother Thomas does in Eureka. It gives added zest, salt, and interest to the daily readings. So what we did when we embarked on that study, of course, we're consuming all the prophecy involved uh, in that so that, you know, we rightly understand it. No question about that. But we've compiled 54 pages of excerpts from Eureka with um, direct quotes from Brother Thomas. There are no added comments at all in this regarding symbols or types in other parts of the word, which are kind of purposely not directly related to the direct prophecy because he's going to get into the prophecy where some of the great earthquakes and Constantine and all of that and the development of things and Napoleon and history and all that, which are wonderful. And he brings out the metaphors involved, but it's really those other hints that he has in scriptures that are referred to in other parts of the word. And there are about 54 pages of the direct excerpts of these quotes, no commentary at all, brothers and sisters, that are taken right from, and the, the, the page numbers correspond with the Eureka Press, the Logos printed volumes of this. Um, so they could make for excellent individual or ecclesial study when, as Brother Mansfield suggests, we take these hints and ideas and expand them. He says, if you take them, you extend and you develop them, they're amazing. And I've spent a life in the truth doing that through little digestions of Eureka. But 10 years ago, I decided... I was going to read the whole thing and go through and highlight these quotes. And by the way, I, I sent these on to Brother David Perry uh, for review. Not that he can review all 54 pages, just to, to have a look at the, 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 the work. He's my elder mentor in the truth, and I've used him for many years to, to vet information. So real quickly, here's just two poll quotes from it. This is to give you an idea. And Brother Pete can send this out to everywhere, everyone or just post it on your website um, in a PDF form. And I can certainly send the word volume. Um, so you can edit it. This is an example, volume one, page 48. While Nahum looked on the latter-day deliverance of Israel through the fall of Nineveh, Habakkuk contemplated the same consumption through the typical fall of Nebuchadnezzar's dynasty. 
If you look at through Daniel and where it's brought up in the prophets of the literal fall of Babylon, you get the exact prophecy of Rome's fall, development, Rome's development and fall. And that's how we know it's the Roman Catholic Church. Types solidify doctrine, the type of the Exodus. After the type of the Exodus from Egypt, Yahweh will rise up from Sair and shine forth as Mount Paran. When you look at all those references he provides there, you'll find that the Latter-day Restoration and when he brings the subjugation of the nations is exactly after the type, of, because that song of Moses is recorded in the Apocalypse. He was the type of Joshua and Gideon. They know, they know not that these outcasts in the antitypical Joshua, the prophet like unto Moses, and the antitypical Gideon with the sword of Yahweh and his chosen band as represented in the Apocalypse. So he's talking about another principle there in the Apocalypse, but he's fortifying it with a type that already exists in the Bible. So if you go back to this, and by the way, I think Brother Jim Cowie has done a lot of this, where he's gone back in his prophetic, prophetic exposition, and he's developed those types out of Joshua and in the book of Judges and Gideon, so that now you're able to develop those spawned on by comments from Eureka. And I've had a, a discussion with Brother Cowie about that. He says, oh, yeah, it's, it's rich with this in Eureka. Here's the slop of the pro the slop, the sleep of the prophet, typical death and resurrection. Zechariah was told that these two branches represented the anointed ones, the sons of oil. We know who they represent, brothers and sisters, standing before the add-on of all the earth. In other words, the two branches represent the saints who are separated from the first, or the Israelitish olive tree, the second from Gentile, and that is, of course, by nature wild. Notice what he goes on to say here. The two branches are not to be confounded with the two trees. These are not the anointed ones, but only the nationalities of the two branches. These symbols then seen by Zechariah after he was wakened by the angel out of his typical sleep are representative of the spirit of Yahweh, that is the spirit's manifestation in the resurrected sons of God. Who are spirits and he talks about this typical death and resurrection of the prophets where the prophecy is given they fall into a slate a, a, a sleep state then they're resurrected and then another series of prophecies or a figurative fulfillment of those happen and he mentions this all and a lot, a lot of those quotes are in this work brothers and sisters so we'll leave it there and that was a little promotion of <laughs> these excerpts from uh, Eureka by Brother Thomas. Um, so those will be sent to, and I think they were already sent to Brother Pete for posting. So brothers and sisters, God willing, next week, um, we'll pick up on uh, our studies with the sin and trespass offering in Leviticus chapters four and chapter.